0: Hello, I'm Roger Bolton, and welcome to the podcast. Please do subscribe and support our podcast by subscribing on Patreon for a mere £5 a month, the price of a couple of posh cappuccinos, or five lettuces, depending on your letters of choice. You'll be keeping our podcast ad-free and hopefully securing our future. This week, it's a double-header. Later, in the run-up to COP27, which our Prime Minister is now going to attend... I'll be talking to David Shukman, the BBC's former science editor, who is celebrating his newfound freedom. I've got to say I'm I'm loving it, but I'm feeling my way. But first this week, the BBC faces a little local difficulty, which could become a very big problem for the corporation. As the financial squeeze gets tighter due to a frozen licence fee and ever-increasing inflation... The BBC has followed up its World Service cuts with some more much closer to home. This time, local radio faces significant changes. Under the proposals, all 39 stations in England will keep their current schedule from 6am to 2pm, but after that, shows will be shared. In other words, the network will become regional, not local. And after 10pm across the week and on Sunday afternoons, it's broadened out to national level, when there will be one, All England show. Now, these changes will result in the closure of about 48 staff posts, with the BBC explaining it wants to transfer resources to digital content. These decisions prompted an urgent question in the House of Commons on Tuesday, and in reply, Julia Lopez, the Minister of State for Media, Data and Digital Infrastructure, expressed, and I quote, concerns about the proposals which we were not given notice of and she described the cuts as disappointing, adding, we are also concerned that the BBC is making such far-reaching decisions without setting out further detail on how it will impact its audiences and the communities it serves. Julia Lopez went on to say that next week she'll be meeting the Director-General and Chairman of the BBC to discuss her concerns. I'm now joined by Paul Seagart the national broadcasting organiser for the NUJ, the National Union of Journalists. Paul, is this a serious problem? The BBC has to make cuts and it's emphasising that it's concentrating on digital, which it believes is the future. Um, Why why will it matter to ordinary local radio listeners if these proposals are carried through?
1: Well, I don't think I'd be um, going over the top, Roger, to say that I think what they're proposing is the biggest threat... Uh, that local radio has ever faced in its 55-year existence. I mean, it celebrates 55 years later this month. It was 1967 that Radio Leicester went on air, the very first local radio station. And I don't think in those 55 years has ever been such a, a threat to, to the existence of local radio as there is now, because I think once you stop making it local... People will stop listening. You know, the key to its success for the last 55 years, well, the clue is in its name. It's local radio.
0: And these proposals in the afternoon essentially uh, stop it being local and make it regional. So it ceases, in a a sense, to be local radio from about 2 o'clock onwards. But the presumption there, Paul, is that it's been successful, but your assumption is it still is successful. Is it? Yeah, the figures are holding up at the moment, but we have seen a fall in recent years, haven't we?
1: We have, but then you tell me any radio station or any TV programme that hasn't seen a, a fall in, in recent years. So currently 5.7 million people listen to local radio, one of the local radio stations every week. That, that's pretty impressive, isn't it? 5.7 million, that's 15% of the adult population. And yes, absolutely, it's not as many now as it was you know, five years ago and th- there is a decline, but it's still a
0: healthy audience. Let's look at this against the context of market failure, because a lot of people would say, well, it doesn't matter, this local radio, if local journalism is happening elsewhere. Is it happening elsewhere? What's the picture that you see of local journalism on the ground?
1: Well, it's deteriorating fast. I mean, when I started out my journalistic career, it was in commercial radio, uh, Southern FM down in Brighton. It covered Brighton and Sussex. It was at that stage a a real rival to local BBC radio. We had reporters that went out and we competed against BBC Radio Sussex as it was at that time. There's no commercial radio station anymore doing that kind of news coverage. It's only BBC local radio that's covering events on radio. And if you look at newspapers, there's been a massive decline in, in newspapers. So a lot Rest on the shoulders of, of local BBC radio to, to cover those local events,
0: the local council to scrutinize the local MP. No one else is doing it. Commercial radio's gone. So it's just in the market, in a sense, has failed, and this is where public service should step in or stay in. Exactly. You mentioned cuts at the start of this, Roger, but actually, these changes to
1: local radio are not about saving money. The budget that uh, BBC England has, is staying the same. So what they've decided to do is move some of that money around, so move it from local radio into this digital-first proposal. So this isn't even about saving money. This is about moving money from A to B.
0: Well, it's not about increasing money, is it? And I'd like to see the figures and know whether they're real, they take into account inflation or not, whatever. But let's assume that it's, it's neutral... The BBC's explanation is... Well, let me read you the headline of the press release it put out in the media centre. BBC sets out plans to transform its local services to deliver greater value to communities across England. And uh, it says, this is to quote uh, the Director of Nations, The plans will help us connect with more people in more communities right across England, striking a better balance between our broadcast and online services and ensuring we remain a cornerstone of local life for generations to come. So there's no question they're going to cut local radio in its broadcast form. Their argument is transfer the money to online services where there is, if not an untapped audience, a future audience. Sounds logical, doesn't it?
1: Well, I think these proposals are great news if you never listen to local radio. It's disastrous news if you are a listener to local radio. I mean, a lot of people who listen to local radio, it's a certain audience. It tends to be an, an older audience. It tends to be the, the C2Ds, the social economic audience. And a lot of the the audience doesn't have access to digital services. They won't be accessing iPlayer or BBC Sounds or all the other kind of digital-first initiatives. They just rely on their radio in their kitchen. So, yes, this proposal is, is good news for some, but not for the local radio audience. And, you know, just to have a breakdown on that, on that give you a breakdown on that figure, Roger, of, of 5.7 million people who listen every week. Out of that 5.7 million, 2.3 million don't listen to any other BBC radio service And 1.1 million out of that 5.7 don't listen to any other radio output at all. So they are very loyal listeners to to local radio. And they pay their licence fee because they like listening to to local radio. That's mainly the only service that they access that the BBC provides. So they are, are really being hit disproportionately over this proposal.
0: Well, as you know, this will fit in with what a lot of people think is happening in Radio 4 and elsewhere, which is that the BBC is so spooked by the thought that young people aren't turning on to broadcast radio. They're ploughing stuff, money, resources into digital, in the hope that younger people will come to them. But in the process, the danger is that some of their keenest supporters, some of the older people who most need public service, are going to be deprived. It's a very tight corner the BBC's in. Do you have any sympathy for their position? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Every day I wake up and I'm glad I'm not a BBC manager because it is incredibly difficult and they do have some some really difficult choices to make, especially with the reduction in in funding. So they do have to make some tough choices. But you're absolutely right. They are chasing this mythical younger audience and they don't seem to be that bothered about losing the loyal older audience. We keep saying 5.7 million people who are listening to local radio every week. That should be an audience that the BBC wants to hang on to, but they seem to be quite happy to annoy them, lose them, in the hope that they're going to be replacing them with a younger audience.
0: But, I mean, the BBC presumably will say, well, okay. well, you don't want us to cut, though. Where do you want us to cut? We've already cut or cutting some uh, world services, um, and presumably, well, I know there are further cuts to come, whatever they are, I can't tell you about I don't know precisely, but there are further planned cuts. And the BBC will say, well, what do you want us to do? We have to cut something... This comes down to the question of who decides what services we're going to have. Should it be the BBC by itself in its own interest and thinking of a more commercial future? Should it be the government? How do we decide? Because we are faced with a situation where services are increasingly going to be withdrawn without any really, as far as I can see it, form of public consultation. Well, I think that's the key. There's been no consultation over these plans
1: regarding local radio. The consultation starts now. And I think, to be honest, I think the BBC has underestimated the love that the public has for local radio. It, it's a, sort of the jewel in the broadcasting crown, really. It's, it's the equivalent, I think, the broadcasting equivalent of the, of the NHS. And we saw yesterday in the debate in the House of Commons how many MPs across all parties spoke up against these plans and in defence of local radio. So I think the fight is, is just beginning. So I'm not convinced that these proposals will go through as they currently stand. I think there's going to be an uprising by the listeners and by the MPs. So I suppose the answer to your question, it, it is a difficult one. One, but surely, ultimately, the public has to decide. The BBC belongs to the public. They fund the BBC. So I think that there needed to be more consultation about these proposals before they w- were announced. You know, I think they should have consulted before rather than saying that they're now going to consult.
0: My thanks to Paul Sigert, the National Broadcasting Organiser for the NUJ, the National Union of Journalists. And now from the local to the global. After another government U-turn... The Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, will be attending the COP27 conference, which starts on Sunday and goes on for nearly two weeks, taking place in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. King Charles, however, will not be there, accepting, as he must, the advice of the government. Well, with the cost-of-living crisis and that of energy, ministerial musical chairs and a war in the Ukraine, there has been much to distract the world's attention from, climate change. Will COP27 change that? It's almost a year to the day when I last spoke to David Shukman, when he was the BBC Science Editor and was reporting from COP26 in Glasgow. That was just a few weeks before he departed from the corporation after a 38-year career. Welcome to the podcast, David. You're going to be at COP27, but in what capacity... Great to be on your podcast, Roger. I'm going in a new role,
2: which is to be a moderator of all kinds of events. I've found that there's massive interest from a whole host of different organisations in understanding climate change, what does it mean for them, what can they do. And a particular interest of mine is to try to distinguish green washing, green promises, green kind of nonsense from serious, much-needed, tangible action. And so I think being in the hot seat of a number of events
0: gives me an opportunity to try to hold some feet to the fire. And was there a sense of relief when you left the BBC, in this sense, that you felt free to say what you thought more openly?
2: It took me a... Well, it's... Yes, is the short answer. Uh, The longer answer is that it's taken me a while... To find my voice. I mean, I've been in, as you say, 38 years. And, you know, one does become thoroughly institutionalised. And it has been a very, it's terrible jargon, but steep learning curve to understand that whether it's on social media or at public events, speaking engagements, I can actually say what I think. <laughs> and I've got I to gotta say I'm, I'm loving it,
0: but I'm feeling my way. You see, there are some people, like Charles Moore I interviewed last week, the former editor of The Spectator, The Telegraph, and both telegraphs, and he said, for example, that uh, Roger Harabin, a former colleague who until recently was the environmental analyst, said uh, so-called of the BBC was almost directly propaganda the whole time for green ideas and never gave serious consideration to criticisms of them. Now, in reflection, do you think there's any truth in that? Do you think you were carried away so convinced of the importance of this issue? Do you think that you didn't pay enough attention to those critics. I really resist that view, and also kind
2: of resented, actually. I mean, my work was substantially on the science of climate change. spent a lot of time visiting different research teams out in the field in different parts of the world, talking to them at at conferences and so forth, and just trying to, in my coverage, reflect the state of the science. And so there was this continual carping from the sidelines, sometimes very, very hostile, sometimes very, very effective, about, oh, the scientists, they're all in it for some gain. Uh, We can't trust them. They just want future funding. I'm somehow part of a kind of green bandwagon. I mean, there was some story that the BBC Pension Fund had investments in wind turbines. I mean, you know, this kind of stuff became kind of Boring, actually, because I think there just is a job, and I, looking back, I don't think we were robust enough about just saying absolutely bluntly, this is what the very best science is saying.
0: If there'd been a substantial dispute between climate scientists about the nature of climate change, you would have obviously reported that. Oh, but yeah. where you found an absolute, con- if not a consensus, almost a consensus... What you felt your obligation was to say to spend much, much more time on those who were part of that consensus than giving air to somebody who was perhaps a rebel voice.
2: Well, the climate deniers and sceptics, call them what you will, would often refer to Galileo was a lone voice speaking up against the orthodoxy of the Catholic Church in you know, pointing out the truth that we orbit the sun, not the other way around. And they say this as if modern science isn't actually founded on the very principles that Galileo himself was following. I mean, namely, you have instruments, you have theories, you test them to destruction, and you actually try to find out through observation what is really going on. And so we, we have this situation now where a denier in a shed with his own unpublished theory about global warming, might be given in certain circles the same prominence as thousands of scientists equipped with satellites at NASA and the Met Office and the French equivalent and the Japanese and the the long list of really reputable, well-funded institutions carrying out detailed observations over decades... You know, that's different, isn't it, to the bloke in the shed? By which I mean Piers Corbyn, who was often quoted by the former Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, in his columns. I mean, so it was very, very easy to get a sense, if
0: you read certain newspapers, that there was an equivalence somehow. Your view there's no equivalence. There's an overwhelming consensus. I really liked, but was never able to say on air that quote, and I don't know who
2: to attribute it to, that if one person says it's not raining and the other person says that it is, you know, our job is to stick our heads out the
0: effing window and just find out which is true. And if it's raining, we just say it's raining. I agree with that 100%, of course, but I suppose that the argument put back, uh, it's slightly a Galileo argument in a sense, is that science advances by challenging the consensus and you almost must always leave space for the radical, if you like. But I suppose you would also say that radical has to have qualifications in the field.
2: Well, qualifications... I mean, you know, there's there's actually a, a, a nice, orderly and, I think, extremely useful checklist one can run through. And I always tell young journalists this, and particularly young science journalists, you know, what are the credentials of the person saying whatever it is that's being claimed? Have they published in a reputable journal... Which, which is a barrier. I mean, if it's complete nonsense, it won't get published. Has it been through peer review? Not infallible, definitely, but it's another barrier. Do they publish their working? You know that terrible thing that might take you back? It does to me, school days, of you've got to show your working when you're doing mathematics. And there's something that's a very important part of modern science. You show how you arrived at your conclusion so others can challenge and test and pull it apart and that's what happens actually by the way if you find a group of scientists together they may be on the same page broadly about carbon dioxide as a warming gas and we are heading for higher temperatures and they will bring a range of dangerous impacts but they will argue like cats in a sack about particular points of detail and and I think at the BBC, I think our, my job was to try to find, well, you know, are there significant points of detail that are relevant to the public? You know, how much is the sea going to rise in the coming century? There's a dispute about that. Now, you could use the word dispute to say, oh, scientists can't agree. Well, actually, that, that's a sort of tabloid formulation. The correct formulation would be, they all agree the sea's rising, but they put different amounts of emphasis on different models suggesting different rates of increase.
0: Can I ask you specifically then on policy, something that Charles Moore put to me? He said, what's going on with net zero is the attempt to impose an artificial timetable on a thing, which is actually extremely amorphous. It's not the case. It can't be proved that if X isn't done by 2050, the world would come to an end or anything like that. So the choice of the date and the choice of the programme and the legislation by which it is enforced is political and to some extent arbitrary and is not objective. Well, all targets are artificial, aren't they? But how how important is net zero, do you think? Is it just a convenient way of focusing the debate and demanding action? Or is it something which is seriously and worked out in a detailed fashion?
2: Look, it's obviously a political target. I mean, it's a nice round date. It's 2050. It's not 2049 or 2053. But let's go back to the science. And forgive me for referring back to science quite a lot in the answers, but there's been a huge volume of work looking at what needs to happen to global carbon emissions in terms of reducing them to achieve certain goals, namely limiting the rise in temperatures. So if you want to limit the rise in temperature as much as you possibly can so that it only goes up one and a half degrees, compared to the pre-industrial level, and we've already gone up 1.1, 1.2. But if you, if you want to keep it to 1.5, beyond which, it's not like a, a, a sort of imminent gateway to doom, but it's a sliding scale. Or one scientist told me about, we're on a slope. And just the, the risk increases, the further down that slope you go, you get an increased risk of floods, storms, heat waves. Uh, it, it's not like you just cross a barrier and bang it. Or go. So Charles Moore has created a straw man in suggesting that there's a kind of gateway to hell if you go through it. So w- what it is, is that the science has made very, very clear, and this is very widely accepted, although not acted on, very widely accepted, that the world needs to halve its carbon emissions by 2030. If it wants a decent chance of limiting the rise in temperatures to one and a half. So the timetable is not arbitrary, it's not political. The timetable is set by the best science we have. They say you've got to halve it by 2030 and reach net zero by 2050 to minimise the risks. Now, the politicians have then taken that, and some countries, in fact, actually, a very large number of countries have now set net zero targets for 2050. Some have more or less credible intermediate targets for what things should be in 2030, 2040 and, and so forth. But nevertheless, there's kind of a movement now that that's become more, more common. So it's a political translation of the latest science. It's not just made up out of thin air, as he would suggest.
0: But politicians are faced... Um... Perhaps a, a more difficult situation than they anticipated a year ago when, we t- when I talked to you we were quite optimistic at the previous COP about progress. But since then, we've had the war in Ukraine. We've had the cost of living crisis, which is very, very disturbing for everybody. We have the energy crisis in part as a result of Ukraine. People again looking at uh, fossil fuels and so on. Do you think there's a, da- Actually, there's a danger now of progress being slowed down? Very. And do you think this COP can, can do anything about that?
2: Yeah, we all live in the real world. And in the real world, there's a you know, desperate attempt in Europe, for example, not to use Putin's gas. And so they're buying gas from wherever they can find it. They're keeping coal-burning power stations running for much longer, reopening them in Germany and so forth. So, I mean, yes, is it a blip? One hopes it's only a blip uh, rather than a trend. But at the same time... I think there's a recognition that there's a, for the first time, and this is a potential silver lining from Vladimir Putin's aggression in Ukraine, that actually previously you could act on climate change and build wind farms, for example, or you could try to drive down costs and make energy as affordable as possible, which could lead you to burn coal, for example. Or you could try to prioritise security, having your own, Firm, homegrown supplies. It was seen as the trilemma in the jargon, three different things. Now, what Putin's action has done is align some of those. So the more wind turbines you have, the more homegrown power you're generating and the less gas you have to buy. The more you insulate our leaky homes, and Britain's homes are the leakiest in Europe, the the more we lag lofts and fill cavity walls and double glaze wherever we possibly can. And I think that should happen on a much more rapid and bigger scale. The, The more you do that, you're saving money and you're having to buy less gas from abroad and you're reducing emissions. So I think for the first time, there's a conjunction actually of different agendas.
0: And is COP important not so much for the decisions that are taken uh, there, well, El Sheikh in this case, but that the focus of attention that it puts upon the issues, and if the more attention there is, the greater scope it gives politicians to act? Do you think that's part of what's going on here? I, do you know what, for some time,
2: and, and I don't know if I mentioned this when we spoke a year ago, but I, I, I've increasingly felt, and I have aired it in, in my reporting over the years, that... As you say, the, the cops provide a focus. They never make more than incremental steps. I mean, they, they, if you've got, you're herding cats, you've got nearly 200 countries with different objectives and some are desperate to see radical action and some are deliberately trying to slow it all down. So you, you're never going to get... And it's consensus. You're never going to get a great leap out of it. But I think what has happened, and I've really noticed this over the last 20 years the COPs have become a kind of focus, a sort of trading centre for ideas. And and increasingly, very large companies now feel an obligation, either from their shareholders or their younger employees or their consumers, to at least engage with this green agenda. And some are more sincere than others. Obviously, there's a tsunami of greenwash going on. But I think within that, there is also some serious change and i think if you've got a process where the cops provide an annual focal point for discussion and action and actually a bit of peer pressure you know i mean for a long time i spoke the other day to the shipping industry which for a long time was absolutely the laggard in all of this saying oh no no we it's too difficult for us we we're not involved blah 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 well Now they're coming under massive pressure from the supermarket chains who buy stuff from China and want it shipped to Europe. And they want greener ships. So you're suddenly finding there'll be discussions at COP amongst the supermarket chains, the big retailers, the shipping industry. All of this kind of stuff provides, I guess, a kind of ecosystem. Now, does it change things overnight? Absolutely not. Is it an excuse by some to look green and do bugger all? Can I say that? Yes, yeah, you can. Yeah, okay, all right. Um, <laughs> is it also a kind of event where at least there's the opportunity for nudging
0: and progress?
2: I've come to think so.
0: It's quite interesting, isn't it, that we've just heard that our new prime minister, uh, Rishi Sunak, is going to go. After all, it comes <laughs> merely a day after Boris Johnson announced. He was going to go. So that's certainly peer pressure. I hope... It, well, a lot of attention will be clearly on those two people. I hope it manages... Some attention is spared for the subjects that might be discussed.
2: Well, one has to hope. I mean, yes, I mean, this is the ongoing Tory psychodrama, unfinished leadership contest, isn't it? Just sort of transferred to the desert. And, and I fear for most certainly British journalists there that the editors back in London will be demanding every spit and fart of who said what, did Rishi Sunak get more people in his auditorium than Boris Johnson or vice versa and, and I think there'll be a kind of And
0: you won't have to do that do you know David, what? You're do you? Know what? You're liberated, you're a moderator yeah. of real issues I, I, I'm
2: looking forward to getting stuck in to what I think are vitally important issues above all this question of are we going to see, are we now seeing genuine change, genuine action that will perhaps go some way to to delivering the kind of outcomes that that we all need. Uh, Without being too sugary about it, having read the science over 20 years and been to all these places, yeah, I I am bloody worried. And I think there is an opportunity to try to shift the juggernaut a bit. Yeah, I'll be tuning out from the, the ongoing Tory leadership contest that will consume most of the attention of many people to focus on what I hope is the, the, the big planetary-scale stuff.
0: And you seem to me to be really enjoying <laughs> it. David Shookman, <laughs> thank, thank you. you very much indeed for talking to us. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. It's a form of
2: therapy. Roger, many thanks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that's it for this week. And remember, do get in touch on Twitter by using at Beep Roger, or you can send an email to roger at rogerboltonsbeepwatch.com And just so you know, this podcast was presented by me, Roger Bolton, and produced by Kate Dixon. It was a good egg production. Until next time, goodbye.